Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We hope you experience God today. Make sure you visit us at risenking.life to take all your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. Good morning, everyone. Over the course of our weeks together leading up to Easter, we've been meditating on on a hymn by an African pastor by the name of Pastor Emmanuel. He's a Burundi pastor. He wrote a a hymn called, Oh, How the Grace of God Amazes Me. And as we've been looking at this together, kind of meditating on the amazing quality of grace, we've taken a verse each week, or each time we've gotten together. And today's verse, it's the third verse of the hymn, says this, Not for my righteousness, for I have none, but for His mercy's sake, Jesus, God's Son, Suffered on Calvary's tree, crucified with thieves was He. Great was His grace to me, His wayward one. Now, as we think about the quality or the character of grace, if you're the recipient of grace, it costs you nothing. It's a gift. But if you're the giver of grace, particularly in the case where God gives His grace to us through the Lord Jesus Christ, it costs Him everything. I've talked to people sometimes and they say to me, you know, I I don't really need this Jesus stuff. I'm spiritual. I believe in God. And and I I like the way one pastor kind of countered that. He said this to a person who said that to them, does your God forgive you? And they said, yes, my God forgives me. Of course He forgives me. I'm human. I need forgiveness. And they asked the question, how much did it cost your God to forgive you? And the answer, of course, is it costs that God nothing. Whereas when you begin to see the grace of God that is given through the Lord Jesus Christ, it is a grace that costs Him everything. As a matter of fact, that's why we use that term, God's riches, G-R-A, at Christ's expense, in order to describe the fact that for you to have a relationship with God, It was very expensive for Christ. Now, what we see on this day, this Sunday, Palm Sunday, we see that Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem in triumph. His disciples proudly and loudly proclaim, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. But within just a few short days, His triumph is turned into trials and His exaltation turned into isolation. And Jesus goes through some of the most rigorous days that any human could possibly have experienced. And I was thinking about this and and how I wanted to present to you the trials of Jesus. And I remembered this extraordinary man that I met. He was born in a Muslim country, but he was born to a Christian family. And because they had been Christian for generations, they were still allowed to worship in a church. But when he became a teenager, he converted to Islam. And he became a lawyer in the Islamic uh, law. And inconveniently to him, he had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ and gave his life to Christ. Then, he got a call from God to plant a church in that country. And so he became a pastor, he planted a church, well... Both of those were illegal activities in the country he was a part of. 
It was illegal to convert from Islam to Christianity, and it was illegal to convert other people to Christianity. So one day, uh, as he was living his life, he was abducted by a militant gang, by a militant religious group, and he was taken and put on trial for his faith. And as he was put on trial, they did unspeakable things to him. As he told me the story of how he was tortured and how he was dehumanized and he was degraded as a person and and they did all of these things to break him. Instead of his faith getting weaker, it got stronger. Then they told him that the one who had betrayed them was actually a member of his church. And yet, he said to me that the entire time, and I'll never forget him telling me the story, the entire time he had the sense of the presence of God. He had a sense that even as they were beating him and, and abusing him, that he still was not alone. He was not isolated. And he, he knew his friends were advocating for him. He knew that his family was praying for him, that his church was praying for him. Although he had been betrayed, although he had been you know, completely tortured for his faith, yet he said his faith grew stronger and stronger. And he said, I don't know how long they did this to me, but one day they just let me go. Now that story has always touched me really deeply, but I always realized this one thing. That as bad as that story is, it cannot compare to what Jesus went through. You see, my friend in his darkest hour was still not alone. Even though he was surrounded by enemies, the manifest presence of Christ was with him in every moment. His friends stayed with him. His family stayed with him. But as we look at Jesus' crucifixion, you see that he goes into greater and greater isolation. As a matter of fact, he sought solace. He sought consolation from his friends and they slept as he prayed. He sought consolation. He sought his father's Comfort, and yet the father had to turn his face away from his own son. You see, Jesus was forsaken so that you will never have to be forsaken. Jesus went through the worst hours of his life completely alone so that you never have to go through an hour of your life alone. There are many of us in this room that when we go through trials, we go, I'm all by myself. Nobody loves me. Nobody's with me. Do you understand? That's an absolute lie. Jesus was the only one who has been completely alone, completely forsaken. But if you are in Christ, He never leaves you nor forsakes you. He was treated in the way you deserve to be treated so that now you are treated as Jesus Himself deserves to be treated. But his isolation and his loneliness came when his greatest trials came. As a matter of fact, he had to go through two distinct trials. One was that he had to go through a religious trial. He had to be tried for his beliefs. And then the second is he had to go through a secular or a civil trial. Now the religious trial was very simply about one thing. They wanted to prove that he was guilty of blasphemy. If they could prove he was guilty of blasphemy, then they had the right to kill him. 
And so they had this one question. We're going to look at three questions that they have, but there's one question that the religious leaders had, and that is this question. Are you the Son of God? And so I'd like you to read with me Luke 22. This is the account of the trial of Jesus. Would you read this with me? I like it when we read out loud, so let's read God's Word together. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. You see, they have absolutely no interest in the truth. All they care about is convicting him. All they care about is killing him. That's all they care about. But Jesus fearlessly stands up to them. And he says this, from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. I love this. This is Jesus' favorite description of Himself. Almost no one else ever calls Jesus the Son of Man, except in one instance where Stephen is is dying. He has an open vision of heaven. The veil is rent, and he sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He sees Jesus standing as the Son of Man at the right hand of God, just like Jesus said He would be. This is an exclusive claim that Jesus makes of Himself 40 different occasions. Not just does He say it 40 times, but in 40 separate occasions, Jesus declares Himself to be the Son of Man. Now the problem that many of us have with this is we we tend to simplify it too much. We say Son of God, well that refers to the fact that Jesus is fully God. And Son of Man refers to the fact that Jesus is fully man. Look, the Son of Man title has a whole lot more than just that He he, he shares with us our humanity. Yes, it, He did share with us our humanity. And of course, it's a statement of His humility. Because Jesus didn't come to be served, He came to serve. Even when no one would wash the feet of those at dinner, Jesus takes off His outer robe, uh, sets Himself up like He's a slave, and washes His own disciples' feet. Yes, He had a humility like no other. He so loved you that He humbled Himself and took on the form of a servant. And and it's true that He shared the fullness of our humanity. Every insult hurt. Every time they beat Him, it was real blood. Every time that that He was in in this kind of challenge that that this whole trial brought about, He felt the fullness of of all the experiences of the anger, of the lies, of all the ways they falsely accused Him. There wasn't a single thing that Jesus went through that He didn't experience to the fullest. As a matter of fact, because He lived without sin, He could experience emotion more fully than you or I can ever experience it. He experienced a purity and a power of emotion like you never have. If you've ever thought, well, how could Jesus, how could Jesus understand my temptation You see, you give in to temptation way too early. It never has to extend to you its full power. But Jesus resisted temptation 
He resisted all the way to the end. So he experienced the fullness of the power of temptation because he never gave in to its power. Now, are you having to think about that? Is that why all of a sudden there's a hush? Are you listening to me? So it is his humility. It is his passion. It is his suffering. But when he calls himself the Son of Man, it is more about his destiny. It is about his future majesty and glory. What he's doing is he's referring that he himself is the fulfillment of Daniel's vision in chapter 7 of Daniel. Daniel sees the Ancient of Days. He sees the throne of the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. He sees heaven itself. But then he sees that one is coming on the clouds like a chariot. And that one is the Son of Man. And He alone can come into that place and all heaven erupts in worship and praise. You see, Jesus, Jesus allowed the triumphal entry in Jerusalem, but He's looking for His triumphal entry into heaven. When all of heaven would worship the Son of Man. You, oh gosh, this is so beautiful and powerful. Here's, what, here's the application that you and I need to have. In His direst moment, He wasn't looking to the past. He wasn't trying to find strength in the present. He was pulling from the future into the moment. Whatever was going on, that moment was nothing compared to His destiny. was nothing compared to who He knew He was. You see, and if you understand what He's saying here, you'll realize that if you are in Him, you are seated with Him. Not a one of you can take a cloud into heaven. There ain't a cloud that can, can hold you. You fall right through it. You're not light. You're heavy. But He comes in in the light of His glory. And He can sit where He was destined to sit. But He didn't sit there for Himself. You see, if He was sitting there for Himself, He would never have left. He left to come get you. He left to come make a way for you. He left because Adam screwed it all up and, and lost our place. You see, God Himself couldn't do it just in His deity. He had to do it in the fullness of His Spirit-filled humanity. So that then when you come into relationship with God through Christ, and you are born of His Spirit, then you are of the same spiritual DNA as the Son of Man who sits in glory. And whatever it is you're going through now, your future is secure. He could face the cross because He knew He would blow the doors off the backside of death and it would go right to, seating, to the seat beside the Ancient of Days, just like Daniel said. And if you are in Him, you are treated as Him. If you are in Him, you are loved as if you were Him. And if you are in Him, you're seated where He's seated. He did all this for you. He did all this so that in this world you would have triumph. He was defeated so that you would be victorious. Are 
See, basically, this is Jesus' secret identity. And if you start to understand this, you'll realize you have a secret identity in Him as well. All of you look kind of like Clark Kent today. (laughs) But you're really Superman. Your true identity is the identity that you have in union with the Son of Man. He alone was capable of sitting at the majesty on high. He alone was doing what we could not do for ourselves, but He did it so that your destiny would be linked to His destiny. So that His place was bound so that now it's your place. His rightful place restores you to your rightful place. What Adam destroyed, our second Adam has restored. See, I love this picture because it looks like he's weak and helpless. It looks like they have control. They lie about him. They accuse him. They could care less about the truth. All they want is a conviction. It looks like he's weak and helpless. But he stands up fearlessly and says with regal dignity, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of God. They say he's convicted with his own lips. They really don't care to investigate whether what he's saying is true or not. You understand? There sitting before them is the very Son of God, but they don't investigate whether that's true or not. They're just glad he said it so they can kill him. Fascinating. They wanted to convict him of blasphemy, but the problem is, Convicting him of blasphemy was not enough to kill him. So they have to go now to the civil government. And so they go to the civil government and they bring a whole different charge because they need a different charge to get Pontius Pilate, the Roman government governor, to kill Jesus. So look with me. Let's read it together. Again, I like it when you read with me. Let's read Luke 23. And they began to accuse him, saying... We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. So here's the second question. The first question, are you the Son of God? Now before the secular government, the question is, are you the King of the Jews? If he establishes himself as a king, now he has put himself against Caesar. And if they can show that he is seditious, that he is treasonous, that he's leading a revolt, then the Roman governor will have to charge him. Now, Pilate has some awareness of Jewish Scriptures. You can't be a Roman governor and not know the people you're governing. So he would know that Genesis says that God has promised a warrior king who will destroy the works of Satan. He knows that the seed of Abraham is the one through whom a blessing will come, and he probably knows the prophetic word that David's throne will be an everlasting throne. He knows these things. And the religious leaders are trying to get him scared. They're trying to use his insecurities. He was a very insecure leader. Now, he's, he's had terrorist plots. And Palestine was an incredibly difficult place for the Romans to govern. 
There were subversions, there were religious rebellions, there were all kinds of things. So the leaders are trying to play on his insecurity as a leader in order to get their way. So basically, these leaders are charging with urgency, one, that Jesus is a religious subversive, that he has claimed equality to God. They're also trying to claim political subversion that he's overthrowing Caesar. And if they can get this, uh, this charge to, to stand, then it would be a capital charge and he would have to die. So they are, they are throwing out all the stops to make this happen. Now the one who is recording for us this history is Luke, Dr. Luke. He is an incredibly sensitive and, and very, his, very personal in his perspective of the trials of Jesus. He was not an eyewitness, but he was a world-class historian. And at the same time, he's a devoted follower of Jesus. And so Luke wants you to understand, in the midst of all the trial that's happening, he makes this emphasis very sure. There is no basis for these charges. Why is that so important? Because if we are to have a sacrifice, he has to be innocent. If we are to have our guilt taken away, we have to have an atoning sacrifice that is innocent. So Luke is laying out why Jesus is the perfect Lamb of God. Now look at, look at how he does this. In Luke 23, 14, Pilate speaking to the religious leaders. He said, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Then he says, neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. You understand? Luke's saying, the civil government finds no basis for the charges. Then, he takes it even more personally, there were two thieves between whom Jesus was crucified, and the second thief says to the other thief who had railed against Jesus, and he rebukes that second thief, and he says, do you not fear God? Since you're under the same sentence of condemnation. In other words, you're going to die and meet your Maker today is what he's saying. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. You see how Luke's laying out his innocence? His, his freedom from all guilt? Well, now he puts it into the mouth of a Roman centurion. The centurion says, after Jesus died, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. In the NIV translation, it says, certainly he was a righteous man. Do you know what a righteous man is in Scripture? It is someone that if you will look into their record, you will find no warrants against them. I don't know about you, but I have warrants in New York City, in Nyack. They're called traffic violations. I have often gone to have coffee with people in Nyack and it cost me $50, $100. I mean, it was good coffee. It just wasn't that good. You know, most of us can't go get through life without blemishes even on our driving record. And yet here is the Lord Jesus Christ portrayed perfectly by the historian Luke saying, even though they were executing Him, they could find no guilt in Him. So then why did they execute Him? Well then, 
we have to look at how Luke lays out the third question. He says, if you are the Christ, if you are the Christ, tell us. See, when you say Jesus Christ, you're not saying His name only. You're saying His name, Jesus, and His title, the Christ. That's the Greek word for the Hebrew idea of Messiah. And Messiah is a very powerful, wonderful word that actually means the anointed one of God. But, but in this case, it's a special combination of all the true anointings of God. In the Old Testament, God anointed the prophets because they spoke His Word for Him. God anointed the priests because they ministered to Him on behalf of the sins and the guilt of their people. He anointed the kings in order to protect and to serve and to defend His people. But in the Messiah, these three come together. Messiah is not Messiah unless He's prophet, priest, and king in one person. And that anointing is the unique anointing of the Messiah. Now listen, listen carefully. I know it's Sunday morning, but I need you to think with me. Alright? What Luke does is he lays out in the mocking, in the torture, in the persecution, Luke lays out exactly who Jesus is even by His mockers. Look at this. In Luke 22, 63-65, now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking Him as they beat Him. They also blindfolded Him and kept asking Him, prophesy! Who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against Him, blaspheming Him. Do you see what Luke is showing by the, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? He's saying, even those who mocked Him were proving Him to be Messiah. They were showing He was a prophet. Even as they laughed at Him, as they derided Him, yet they were revealing His true nature. In Luke 23, Herod had wanted to see Jesus. He wanted Jesus to conjure up some signs for Him. But instead, he sees this weak and helpless looking Jesus who's disfigured and bloodied and beaten and all of this. And so he begins to ridicule him along with all the people in his court. And they laugh at Jesus. And they say, well, if you're the king, you should dress like the king. And they take our bloodied Savior. And they take our disfigured Savior. And they put this kind of incredible irony of beautiful kingly robes on and mocking him as the king even unwittingly speaking of the fact that jesus is the king even as they mocked him they sent him back to pilate with kingly robes on and then this one is so powerful you'd miss it if you if you don't look closely but one of those criminals when he was railing at Jesus. He says, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and save us. What you don't understand sometimes in that is that's a reference. Luke intentionally is referring to the work of the high priest. Do you understand in the Old Testament, a high priest first had to save himself before he could save anybody else. He had to make a sacrifice for his own sins. As a matter of fact, before the, sacrifice, before the high priest entered into the Holy of Holies, he spent days bathing ritually. He spent days getting rid of all of his sins. He spent a whole night before he entered the Holy of Holies praying with 
his friends who are desperately pleading mercy on the high priest because the high priest was a sinner. And the high priest needed a sacrifice. And the Holy of Holies was so mysterious and so so awesome and awe-inspiring, the fear was if I mess up or if I messed up, I will die in that place. They even put a rope around his ankle so they could pull him out if he got killed. What a job description, right? (laughs) But did you hear what I said? All night his friends came and prayed with him. Isn't that what Jesus tried to get His friends to do with Him? But instead of praying with Him, they slept. See, the high priest never entered alone. Everybody was concerned for Him, but no one was concerned for our high priest. They mocked Him. They railed against Him. They said, are you really the high priest? Then save yourself. And save us. You see, everything they were mocking, His prophetic word, his priestly activity, his kingly, his kingly authority, all that they mocked was actually true of him. And Luke is unpacking this for us in such a beautiful way. And it begins like this. The prophetic word came straight to the thief. This Messiah who's on a cross is saying to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. You see, the prophetic word is not going to be true. It is true. It's the future brought into the present. It is already a reality because our God is not bound by the present. And so when the prophetic word comes and Jesus gives the prophetic word and He says, today you will be with Me in paradise. Come on, that's pretty good. Come on. Well, here's the part I like probably the best. The Father absolutely affirm that Jesus is the high priest that we have all been waiting for. The whole land went dark when He died. And then the veil in the temple was torn into that holy place that even the priest was afraid to go into now is laid bare and exposed for all to see because our high priest has entered into the heavenly holy of holies. And not only did He minister on our behalf, He became the sacrifice of atonement on our behalf. God exhausted all His wrath against our sins in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is finished. The debt is paid. And what this shows, I mean, this is, this is so clear, but a lot of people don't want to recognize But what it shows is everything up to then, every high priestly activity, every lamb that was sacrificed was nothing but theater. It was nothing but symbol. It was only pointing to the true Lamb of God who once for all time would take away the sins of the world. And God was saying, this is the real thing. And this is the real high priest. See, He couldn't be Messiah if He wasn't prophet. And He couldn't be Messiah if He wasn't high priest. And the Father declared in the natural that the supernatural had taken place and the debt had been paid. Come on. Am I talking too fast? Come on. (laughs) Do you not see how beautiful this is? It's right there in every part of what what Luke is trying to get. This is for followers of Jesus to just go, Lord, You loved me that much? Lord, You were willing to pay that price so I could have a relationship with the Father through You and it would all be of grace? 
It would all be at your expense. Well, the last of the three is that he has to also be the king. And in Jesus' death, he proved that he was the king. He was the king of his own body. Do you understand? He was not killed. He said, no one takes my life from me. I willingly give my life. On the cross, the, the means of death was suffocation. After a while, you just got too tired to get a breath. You couldn't push yourself up anymore to get your lungs to fill up and eventually you would die. But this took hours and hours for it to go on because the instinct of survival is so real. But Jesus says with a loud voice, Father, into Your hands I commit My Spirit. And having said this, He breathed His last. The cross didn't kill Him. He gave His life. But before He gave His life, He became sin. He became your sickness. The Bible says, He who knew no sin became sin so that you might become the righteousness of God in Christ. He became your immorality. He became your gossip. He became your anger and your depression. He became your unbelief. He became all of those things. He became your diabetes. He became your cancer. He became your bad you know, aches and pains. He became all of those things so that He could pay all those things in His own body. And then when He had paid for it in full, He said, it is finished. The debt is paid. It's such a powerful Greek word. It's one word, tetelestai. And it's a word that means the debt has been paid. So that on every page of a believer's life, there is a mark that says paid in full. Here's how Luke explains the death of Jesus. He says, with a regal dignity, with sovereign authority, the king of his own body bowed his head and committed his spirit. Man, this is our Jesus. This is who he is. And Luke gives the significance in this passage, both in chapter 22 and chapter 23, of Jesus' death. And it's a word that appears over and over again. Save us. Save us. And the one who was despised was actually the prophet, the priest, and the king. But in order for us to save us, in order for him to save us, he could not save himself. If he had saved himself, he would not save us. He alone was the priest willing to not be saved in order that you might be saved. And as we, as we look at this together, I want you to see something. They're right there. They're seeing what's happening. Only two people out of the whole group actually recognized who Jesus was. The one was a dying thief. That dying thief recognized and he, he says, I deserve what I'm getting. I deserve this death. I am who they have judged me to be, but will you, Jesus, remember me? And then the other one was the, was the Roman centurion. I am, I am pretty certain, friends, he was one of those mocking Jesus. Because it says those who had custody over him. So one of those mocking Jesus saying, let's blindfold him and see if he can prophesy who hit him. 
one of those mocking soldiers, when he saw the death of the Son of God, he praised God. And he said, surely this man is righteous. I love these two songs that come out of, in a sense, both of those experiences. One of the old, I know, I'm, having done one hymn, I'm doing three now. The Dying Thief, one of the great hymns of all time is There's a Fountain Filled with Blood, Drawn from Emmanuel's Veins, And Sinners Plunge Beneath That Flood Lose All Their Guilty Stains. The second verse is The Dying Thief Rejoiced to See That Fountain in His Day, And There Have I, Though Vile as He, Washed All My Sins Away. And then, this is a newer kind of song that's written like a hymn. And it really reflects what the centurion saw, but it also allows you to see the cross from your own eyes as if you were the centurion. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I just wanted to give this to such a beautiful unpacking of what Jesus went through, His expense, to give you the gift of grace. But what I ask you today is, are you like the rest of the crowd who didn't even notice, didn't even know what was going on? Or are you like the dying thief or like the Roman centurion? Today is our day. Today is our day to say, Jesus, you are the righteous one. Jesus, remember me. See, everything that Jesus did was so that you could have an intimate relationship with the Father totally at His expense. Will you stand with me? I like this second song so much and we don't sing it very often. I asked Gabe if he would help us to close this service by having us sing Behold the Father's Love for us today. How deep the Father's love for us How vast beyond all measure That He should give His only Sin that held him there, and sin 
for you is grace. All He has for you is mercy. Don't run from Him. Run to Him today. Come close. Come close. The Father wants you near, not far away. Jesus has already made a way all the way to the right hand of the Father. Having left, having become fully human, He now sits glorified, risen, glorified, exalted Savior. And He says, come, come. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Come. Come to me. For I'm gentle of heart, he says. Even, I think of how many ways he invites us to come today. His sweetness, his tenderness. Think about what the scripture says. It's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. We love him when we realize how much he first loved us. Would you just receive that love, that grace? It's, it's for you. It's for you. Wherever you are in your life, would you receive it today? Would you say this with me? Lord, I receive your grace. You paid the price. I receive you as my Savior, as my Lord, as my friend. The truth is, if, if you invite Him in, He rebirths your whole life. You're born of the Spirit, born anew, born again. He's the God of fresh starts. And some, some people say second chance, I say thousand chances. It's amazing how gracious and merciful because if he's paid the price you just have to receive the gift but I also sense there's some of you that it's sort of weak you sort of feel like you're in a weak and helpless circumstance or a difficult one would you call on the fearlessness of Jesus right now will you call on the prophetic word of God which is real today even though it may take place tomorrow 
because the Lord Himself stood in the trial and said, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of majesty on high. That's where He is. That's where He is, and that's where you are in Him. Lord, we bless what You're doing in Jesus' name. Amen.